uh, three months working our way through the Old Testament wisdom literature. And today I want to draw this series to a close by looking back on it from this side of the cross. And I want to have a look at how some of those things which the wisdom literature was concerned with find their fullness in Christ. And so you're going to have to bear with us a little bit today because uh, Colossians 2, 1 to 5, our scripture for today, that is really our final destination for today. Uh, Today is all about the whole journey of of getting to that final destination and we're going to be jumping around a lot from uh, Old Testament back to New Testament, backwards and forwards. Now, those of you that have been present with us throughout that whole series uh, would remember, uh, hopefully, this diagram that we looked at at the very start uh, and we looked at how our Old Testament was Uh, divided up and it's divided up into four main parts so you've got the books of the law which are those first five books of our bibles the torah and then you've got the history books and there's a whole lot of them uh, that speak to us all about uh, the history of of israel through all the kings and the judges and all of that time and then there are the the prophets and the prophets uh, we have the what we would call the the key prophets, um, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Jeremiah also wrote Lamentations, Ezekiel and Daniel, and a series of of 12 what we call minor prophets, mainly because their books are are smaller. And then finally, there's that other type of literature, which we've spent the last three months delving into, which is known as the writings, which consider... contains the the psalms and the wisdom literature now when we come to deal with that other half of the book of the the bible the new testament the part of that the bible that deals with um, things that happened after the birth of christ i think it's important for our understanding of how god worked his redemptive plan out through history that we see how christ fits with each of these categories of Old Testament literature. It's also one of my personal bugbears that um, where people read Old Testament, that word old, they tend to read as as redundant or outdated. And it's almost like they feel that uh, the Old Testament is there as some kind of historical relic, reference point. Um, But they focus most of their reading in the New Testament. And when we do that, when we fail to read the Old Testament, we miss out on a lot um, because we fail to see the whole picture. We only see part of it and we don't see what, how God has been working things together throughout time. So in terms of how Jesus fits within um, some of these books, the history books are probably the easiest for us to deal with because as we read those history books, we can see how the failings of the earthly priests and the judges and the kings actually point to the need for Jesus as a great high priest and as the king of kings. And we can follow the genealogy through the line of David and we can see just where Jesus fits in. 
I'm just going to ask someone up the back if they wouldn't mind turning that light off. It's just flashing continually in my face and it's very off-putting. When we look at the, the law and the prophets, um, Jesus actually made a statement regarding how he, his relationship to the law and the prophets. That's better. And we find that statement in Matthew 5, 17. He said, Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfil them. Now that is probably one of the most theologically rich statements that you'll find in the Bible. And if we were to do justice to that statement, we'd be in for a very long morning this morning. So we're not going to be able to do that. I just want to scratch the surface to just indicate to you perhaps some of the ways in which Jesus does fulfil the law and the prophets. So in terms of the prophets, um, there are at least 300 prophecies that are given in the Old Testament that find their fulfilment in Christ. Some of them are very specific about the town where he would be born, um, things like that. Some of them are less specific, but there are about 300 of them that find their fulfilment in Christ. So in that respect, we see that he fulfills the prophets. But I think there's another way in which he fulfills them. And it's a way in which he kind of takes it to the next level. So the prophets spoke the word of God. But Jesus, we're told, was the word of God. So in that respect also, he not only fulfills the prophets, but he takes it to the next level. And when we think about the law... <clears throat> We can consider the law in two parts. So there's that moral and ethical part of the law. And that was the part that the people found hardest to fulfill because of their sinful natures. Um, so like us, they struggled to do justly. They struggled um, to help widows and orphans and the poor. Uh, they struggled to fulfill that side of the law. Like us, they were tempted like us, they allowed other things to take the place of God in their lives. And this moral and ethical side of the law they struggled with. But there was also the sacrificial and ceremonial part of the law uh, where sacrifices would be made to atone for sin. And we see that only Jesus could fulfil that first moral and ethical part of the law because only Jesus was without sin. But when we consider this second part of the law, the people through their priests could continually make these sacrifices. But Jesus again takes things to the next level by becoming the spotless sacrifice for sin. So what then of this fourth type of literature, the wisdom literature, how does Jesus relate to this wisdom literature? How does it find fullness of expression in Christ? Well, Jesus doesn't make quite such a direct statement regarding his relationship to the wisdom literature as he did to the law and the prophets. But neither is he silent on that subject either. And certainly uh, those who were around him, the witnesses to his life and ministry, certainly they recognised wisdom in Jesus, even from an early age. 
So this is one of my, probably my favourite religious painting because I think the artist just captures perfectly the looks on the faces of Simeon and Anna in this painting as Jesus' parents, Mary and Joseph, take him um, at eight days of age to the temple as required by law um, to present him there in the temple. And Luke concludes his little narrative about that event with this summary statement for us. And the child grew and became strong. He was filled with wisdom and the grace of God was upon him. Now, many of you here have children of your own. How many of you could say that your children were filled with wisdom from a very early age? So from a very early age, Jesus was recognised as different because he was filled with wisdom. A little, a little later on, a few, few chapters on in the Gospel record of Luke, uh, Jesus is 12 years old by this stage. He's travelled to Jerusalem with his family for the Passover festival. And at the end of that festival, they have begun travelling home. And there was a large party of people travelling with them. And the parents of Jesus eventually realised, actually, we don't know where he is. Where is he in this crowd? And so they return to Jerusalem after looking through the crowd and they can't find him anywhere. No one knows where he is. They return and they find him in the temple and he's listening and speaking with the teachers in the temple. And Luke records for us that everyone who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And he goes on to conclude at the end of that narrative about that event and Jesus grew in wisdom and in stature and in favour with God and men. But that favour that he had with men would not last long. A few more chapters on we see that Jesus has grown up and he's become a great teacher and he's drawing the crowds and the crowds that he draws they want to see miraculous signs. And it is in this context that Jesus makes what is probably his most direct reference to his relationship with the Old Testament wisdom literature that we've been looking at. He says to them, the Queen of the South, that's the Queen of Sheba, will rise at judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them. For she came from the ends of the earth to listen to Solomon's wisdom. And now one greater than Solomon is here. So what he's saying is that even from afar, the Queen of Sheba was able to recognise the wisdom of Solomon. And she was able to gather gifts around her and travel that long distance to go and to learn from him. And yet here is one greater than Solomon standing among the people and they don't recognise the wisdom in him. So what we learn from the way that Jesus is introduced in the Gospels and even the way that he introduces himself is that here is someone who is being presented very much in the wisdom tradition of Israel. Here is someone who's being presented as you would present a Jewish sage or wisdom teacher. 
In fact, here is someone who is being presented as greater than the greatest of the Hebrew sages. But of course, it is not only the way that Jesus was presented that is consistent with the wisdom tradition of Israel. If you look at what Jesus actually said, the way he spoke, the way he taught, you will find that wisdom forms demonstrate and are a part of the majority of what Jesus actually said. And the predominant form by which he taught, of course, was that of the parable. And incidentally, we're going to be working our way through some of the parables of Jesus later on in the year. So this year we'll really see us covering both Old Testament and New Testament wisdom teaching. There are about 70 recorded parables across the four Gospels. Some of them are long, some of them are very short. The English word parable comes from the Greek parable, which is itself a translation of a much broader Hebrew term, mashal. Mashal means a proverb. It means a saying. It means a parable or, or an allegory and a riddle. It can mean any of those things. So by teaching in parables, Jesus is placing himself right within that Hebrew wisdom tradition. And some of the parables of Jesus actually serve to illustrate some of the Old Testament proverbs. Listen to what Jesus says. But when you are invited, take the lowest place so that when your host comes, he'll say to you, friend, move up to a better place. Then you'll be honoured in the presence of your fellow guests. So that's what Jesus taught. Compare it to what the Proverbs taught. Do not exalt yourself in the king's presence and do not claim a place among great men. It is better for him to say to you, come up here, than for him to humiliate you before a nobleman. You can see they're almost exactly the same, the teachings of Jesus and what you find in this particular proverb. Now, there's lots of examples. I'm not going to give you a whole lot of them. Um, that's just one. But beside the parables, Jesus used other forms of speech that we might call wisdom speech. Some of these, for example, some of his proverbial type sayings also echo what we find in the Proverbs. So Jesus said, for whoever exalts himself will be humbled and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. That's what Jesus said. What it says in the Proverbs is, a man's pride brings him low, but a man of lowly spirit gains honour. You can see again, it's very similar teaching. Some of the other things that Jesus says, they simply sound like Proverbs. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. Or the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Now there's loads and loads of examples of these types of things. If you're of that particular bent that you're interested in those types of things, Graham Goldsworthy's book, Gospel and Wisdom, is where you want to look to see a whole lot more examples of this type of thing. 
Other forms of speech that we find from Jesus, the blessings and the woes, even the Sermon on the Mount, they fall within what we would classify as wisdom-type speech. So what we see is not only that Jesus is presented within that wisdom tradition, but also that he teaches in the wisdom tradition. But he didn't just teach in the wisdom tradition. He also walked and lived in that tradition as well. Now, the predominant message, which I hope has been drilled into your head over the last three months from the Old Testament wisdom literature, is that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And if we scratch a little bit deeper and think about what that actually means, what does it mean to fear the Lord? We can come up with a few things. Someone who fears the Lord has a reverence for God. Someone who fears the Lord is continually aware of his presence and they have a sincere commitment to obey him. Listen to how the writer of Hebrews describes Jesus. During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with loud cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. And he was heard. Why? Because of his reverent submission. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from what he'd suffered. And once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. By the way he lived, in his relationship with the Father, in his constant communing with the Father, in his reverent submission to him, in his obedience of him, even to death on the cross, Jesus demonstrates for us what the Old Testament says. He demonstrates what it means to fear the Lord. Now, each of these things up on the screen, they're, they're all great. Jesus is presented in the wisdom tradition. So was Solomon. Jesus teaches in the wisdom tradition. So did Solomon. So did lots of other people. Jesus demonstrates for us what it means to fear the Lord. Well, at least for a time, so did Solomon. And so did lots of other people. Cornelius in the book of Acts and his whole family are described as people who feared the Lord. But in Jesus, there's more. And the more is the bit that really matters to us because it's what sets Jesus apart from all the others. I believe that just as Jesus took what we read in the Old Testament history books to the next level by being the great high priest and the king of kings, and just as he took the law to the next level by becoming that sacrifice for sin, and just as he took the prophets to the next level by being the very word of God, so he takes the wisdom tradition to the next level by actually embodying wisdom in himself. He is the very wisdom of God and that 
is what changes everything for us. Proverbs 8 is a beautiful chapter of scripture. We don't have time to read it all today, but if you're looking for something to go home and reflect on tonight maybe, go home and read Proverbs chapter 8. It is a passage of scripture in which wisdom is personified. Now many see reference to Jesus in this chapter. And certainly there does appear to be much in the chapter which sounds a lot like Jesus. To you, O people, I call out, I raise my voice to all mankind. Well, that sounds like Jesus. I was appointed from eternity, from the beginning, before the world began. That also could sound like Jesus. I love those who love me and those who seek me will find me. Could be Jesus. My fruit is better than fine gold. What I yield surpasses choice silver. Counsel and sound judgment are mine. I have understanding and power. Again, sounds a lot like Jesus. For those who find me find life and receive favour from the Lord. Lots of sort of allusions there to Jesus potentially. In the New Testament, our New Testament writers are much more explicit, of course, because they're writing after the birth of Jesus. And this is what the Apostle Paul says of him. To the Corinthian church, he says, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. And to the Colossians, he says, in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So everything that we need to know about the Father, everything that we need to know about his created order, everything that we need to know about living well within that created order, all of it is available to believers in Christ because he is the wisdom of God. In the words of Matthew Henry, these treasures of wisdom that are written about in Colossians, these treasures of wisdom are hidden not from us, they are hidden for us in Christ. So whether or not that personified figure of wisdom in Proverbs 8 is actually intended to represent Jesus, or whether it's just a poetic way of illustrating how God's wisdom was expressed at creation, we don't know, and we probably will never know, and there's certainly much debate among the scholars about it. But it certainly seems like there's a lot in there that sounds an awful lot like Jesus, and that is what you would expect if, as the Apostle Paul says... Jesus is the wisdom of God, then you would expect that an Old Testament passage that is teaching about wisdom would contain something in there that we might see expressed in Jesus. So what we see here is not only is he introduced in the wisdom tradition, not only does he teach in the wisdom tradition, not only does he live and demonstrate for us 
what it means to fear God. But Jesus actually is the wisdom of God. And this is where we come to the pointy end of things for us. If we jump back again to the Old Testament, hopefully you will remember that wisdom is always held in contrast with something else. begins with F. Wisdom is held in contrast with folly or foolishness. And both of them are depicted in the Proverbs as calling out, come in here, come my way. But now it has been revealed to us that Jesus is the very wisdom of God. So in the New Testament, the choice is not between wisdom and folly. Well, in one sense it is, but it is between Jesus and folly. If you are to choose the path of wisdom, you must choose the path of Jesus. You can't truly be wise without him. You might be plenty smart. You might even be a genius with one of those really high IQs, but you will not be truly wise because you are on the wrong path if you've chosen the path without Jesus. If you've chosen the path without Jesus, you are on folly's way. And there's nowhere else that that path goes. Now, in the Old Testament, we read that, you know, fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. In the New Testament, we're told that Jesus is the wisdom of God. So in the New Testament, then, fear of the Lord must find its expression, at least initially, through faith in Christ. And as the wisdom of God, Jesus is the source of wisdom for his people. Before Jesus died, he made a promise to his disciples. He promised them that he would give them words and wisdom that none of their adversaries would be able to resist or contradict. Find that in Luke 21:15. And that promise still stands. He continues to give wisdom to those who ask. In James, we read, if any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to him. Solomon's wisdom was imperfect because Solomon was a flawed human being like the rest of us. In spite of his great wisdom, ultimately Solomon end up, ended up a wealthy, self-indulgent fool. Because all the wisdom in the world cannot change human nature. Jesus is who he claims to be. He claims to be one who is greater than Solomon. He is the perfect wisdom of our God. And he is the only means by which flawed human beings will be able to live well within God's created order because he is the only one who can redeem us from 
sinfulness, redeem us from our own human natures. 1 Corinthians 1.30 puts it like this, it is because of him, that is God, that you are in Christ Jesus. He has become for us wisdom from God. That is our righteousness, holiness and redemption. Now there's much that the Old Testament wisdom literature can and has taught us about living well in God's created order. But we cannot overlook the fact that it anticipates one who will be coming who is greater than Solomon. And even today, wisdom and folly continue to call out to those who pass by. And Proverbs 9 tells us that the woman folly is loud. She is undisciplined and without knowledge. She sits at the door of her house on a seat at the highest point of the city and she calls to all who pass by. And she says, let all who are simple come in here. She says to those who lack judgment, stolen water is sweet. Food eaten in secret is delicious. But little do they know, says Proverbs, that the dead are there, that her guests are in the depths of the grave. And I think Eugene Peterson really brings that passage to life for us through his interpretation in the Message Bible. He says this, and as people walk by, minding their own business, she calls out, are you confused about life? Don't you know what's going on? Steal off with me and I'll show you a good time. No one will ever know. I'll give you the time of your life. But they don't know about all the skeletons in her closet that all of her guests end up in hell. The woman folly is loud and she has lots of ways to entice us to come down her path. A little temporary pleasure here or some personal gain there and so easily we part with that which is priceless and we head down the way of folly. Now not that a little temporary gain or a little personal pleasure is not part of the way of Jesus. It is, but it's just that the woman folly would like you to believe that it's not. And that's because folly puts these things ahead of him. And folly speaks to us no matter what age or stage of life we are at. Folly says to the young people, this spiritual stuff it's just for the oldies. You're young. Enjoy yourself while you can now. Or what would your friends think if you got involved in all of that? Your education is the most important thing. You need to work on your career. Your social life is more important. You can worry about all that spiritual stuff later on when you're older. Enjoy yourself now while you can. 
and folly speaks to our young marrieds and to our young families. And she says to them, you're busy. This is a busy stage of life. Plenty of time later to worry about spiritual things. Put your energy now into paying off that mortgage, into raising your kids. Spend your weekends running around with them. Education and family time, that's what's most important now. Maybe when the kids leave home, then you'll have time for spiritual stuff. Then you can get yourself right with God. And Folly speaks to our older people as well. She says, rest, enjoy yourself. You deserve it. You've worked hard. Now is the time that you can finally do everything your heart's desired. Now, of course, those are all gross generalizations. What is attractive to one person won't be attractive to another. But the point is, folly is there all the time, whispering in our ears. You know which area of life you are most susceptible to listen to her in. You know where you're most likely to be pulled towards Folly's path. And it doesn't take much. And you don't have to travel very far down Folly's path before you find yourself deep in the woods. You are so far deep in the woods that you struggle even to see the other path, let alone to find your way back to it. In 2004, this painting here was presented at the Antiques Roadshow. Have any of you ever seen or heard of Antiques Roadshow? One of my dad's favourite shows. You go to his house, and it's on TV, and he'll say, how much do you think that's worth? And I'll tell him how much it's worth, and he'll say, no way, because he's seen all the shows and he knows what everything's worth. <laughs> this painting was brought to the Antiques Roadshow by a man. It had been purchased by his mother off an elderly lady who lived nearby. The painting was of an old American street scene that featured a check it in. The man who brought the painting to be valued said of the elderly lady who had painted it, she was just a wonderful family friend. And she would let my mother buy these paintings, which she thought had relatively little value. I guess my mother did too. She probably bought eight or ten of them in all, and my guess would be perhaps for under ten dollars each. Well, that painting is known as the old Check It In in summer. And it was purchased for under $10, most likely somewhere between $3 and $5, because that is what this lady sold most of her paintings for. That was the value that she gave them. It was valued at the Antiques Roadshow by a guy named Alan Fausel, who's an expert in paintings and drawings. 
and he gave it the value of $60,000. Today it's worth $100,000, US dollars, not Australian dollars. Anna Mary Robertson, the elderly lady who lived down the road, is better known today as Grandma Moses. That's her there. She took up painting properly at the age of 78. And in her early days of painting, Grandma Moses did not think of her works as being very valuable at all. So she parted with them for next to nothing. The average price, like I said, for which she used to sell them was between three and five dollars. In November 2006, another of her well-known paintings, uh, this one's called Sugaring Off, was sold for 1.2 million US dollars. How often do we part with that which is priceless for a little temporary pleasure or advantage? How often do we abandon that which matters the most for those things that matter the least? And if you want to know what matters most to someone, you don't need to listen to what they say. You just need to look at what they do, what they do with their time and where they spend their energy. That'll tell you what matters most to them. Fools do not seek wisdom because they do not see any value in it. Wise people will seek wisdom, even at great expense, because they understand how important it is to living well. Fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and this side of the cross, that will be expressed firstly through faith in Christ, who is the wisdom of God. That is the first step on the right path. If you have put your faith in Jesus, you are on the right path. But it is a lifelong journey. And folly is there at every stage of life, calling out, drawing us to her path. So we need to take care to stay the course. We need to encourage one another to stay the course. Whatever stage of life you find yourself at, continually evaluate where it is that you are putting your time and energy. Does that demonstrate that you're walking the path of wisdom? Don't listen to folly. Pursue wisdom. Because the Bible tells us wisdom is more precious than rubies. And there is nothing that you could desire and nothing that folly could hold out to you that would come close to what we have in Christ, who is the wisdom of God. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for all that you have left us and all that we have learned these past three months from the Old Testament wisdom literature. We thank you for what these books have had to teach us about living well within your created order. But Lord, we know that on our own, like Solomon, we can never fully live up to this standard because of our own flawed human nature.
We thank you that Jesus is your perfect wisdom. He is our righteousness, our holiness, and he is our redemption. He is the only one who can truly help us to live well within your created order. Help us, Lord, to be good stewards of the wisdom that you have given us. Help us to be lifelong learners who use what we have been given to bring glory and honour to you. Amen.